when I first watched the video of George Floyd's murder, I had no words. I mean, I said a few obvious things on Facebook, but man, I was stunned. I, I was sad. I was grieved. I was bewildered both personally and as a pastor and the wound still being fresh, of course, from Ahmaud Arbery and, and addressing that and, and the, the string of racist events that we had and grieving the, the America that we lived in, grieving for the families and grieving um, for the African-American community, feeling at a loss of, of, of what to do, uh, to, to what to say really that I haven't already said dozens of times as, as this keeps happening over and over again. So we gather the church to pray, which is something we always must do. We always must pray. And we, as we gather to pray, we, we, we cried out for what only God can do. And then, of course, as Greg mentioned, we, got, we uh, recently had a conversation. That's what we thought would be best initially. Initially, like we really need to be listeners. We really need to call people together to hear one of their stories. We're not getting through an understanding. And this is something that we've been imploring each other to do really for, for years, ever since Ferguson, ever since the shooting of Michael Brown imploring one another we need to be those who empathize those who listened who who understand and my prayer is that we finally get that to not to get see past the riots okay see past the anger to not to not judge that and to see why maybe they they might how, how this anger is maybe is so understandable i mean i think we we i use this analogy before or this experience that I have to, to maybe give some insight into a couple different things. So if you've ever been on the phone with customer service of any large corporation, it is one of the most infuriating things, okay? So you're on there, you know, they, they overcharged you, the, the product is faulty or something, so you call them and you get the runaround. I mean, you're on the phone forever, okay? And you just get passed from one person to the next. And every time you talk to a new person, you have to re-explain your story. You have to start from the beginning. It's like, don't you guys keep notes? I mean, can't you? Wow, man, I just have to keep telling my story. It's like nobody gets it. Nobody understands. Nobody wants to help. And after an hour, there's one of two things that I want to do. I mean, I want to throw something. Um, or I'll just want to hang up. Like, I'm done. Like, okay, I'd rather... I'd rather pay extra. I'd rather have this faulty product than to have to go through the agonizing process that you guys are leading me through. And I feel that way after an hour. Man, our African-American brothers have been begging people to listen to them, to hear their stories, um, to hear where they're coming from. And they keep getting tossed from person to person, told to wait, having to retell their story over and over again, man. So I get, I get the, the anger, man. I understand it. I really do. But what breaks my heart more is, is knowing that many will just want to give up because I understand that too. And that's something that we need to own. I just want to speak directly to, to those of us who are white. We need to own that. And that's why it's so important that we listen. We all need to listen to each other. Black, white, brown, whatever. We need to be those who listen. And in the gospel, we have those resources. We have a savior that we follow that empathized. That was his number one emotional, his emotion. If you follow the emotional life of Jesus, you see that the biggest thing that he expressed, the most common thing he expressed, excuse me, was compassion. 
but it needs to be in us more. And so we talked about this need for listening and not just listening, like I said, empathy. And not just empathy, but, but educating ourselves and understanding and understanding the history. Understanding what's going on and then repenting. Seeing the, this, looking into this mirror and realizing where we need to change. And so today I, I want to talk to you about this biblical vision of one new man. So we're going to break from this series that I'm really excited about, Family Friends. We've had PG last week, and uh, we had my good friend, Tapi Colioso. He was set to speak, and after that, Andrew Wilson. And they're still going to speak to us, and it's going to be amazing. You do not want to miss those weeks. But I want to talk into this vision of one new man, the biblical vision, and why every Christian should care about what's going on in our country and should hate it and want to get after it and see it stopped. But more important, I keep, it's not more importantly, but in addition, we, that I want us to see that we have the resources in the gospel, that you and I have the resources in the gospel to do something about it. So we should care about it. That's what we're going to learn today. And we have the resources to do something about it. And it's really unique to the Christian call. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach a message. Actually, my notes are from a, a message I preached two years ago at a leadership conference. I lead a, a, a group of churches. For those who've been around a while, know that we're a part of this wider family of churches, this global family, which is awesome. We enjoy the fellowship uh, very, very much. And I was given leadership of a group of these churches, about 30, and we had to come up with a name. And the thing that really burned in our heart was this idea of seeing uh, people come together to make greater Im- uh, impact and flow. And that's what, you, that's what a confluence is, you know, very famously in St. Louis, the Missouri, and the Mississippi coming together, two rivers of equal size coming together to make one big river, more flow, more impact. And that's what we wanted. And so at the very first message that I gave as the leader of this group of churches is I want to talk about one new man, how this was really a, a, a call for the church of all time, but it's a unique call for us, I think, in this season. And again, it, I want to get to the importance of it and, and, and the power and how we can make it happen. And this is important, and, and this is why everyone should care. Um, it's not just in Ephesians 2, it's all throughout the Bible. Um, we see that Jesus prayed this prayer. The, the final week of his life, he prayed that you and I would be one, just as he and the Father are one. That we would be that there's equality in the Trinity, and there's 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 mutual love and respect. And there's togetherness, there's one heart and one mind, and he prayed that prayer, and he would go to the cross to pay the price for that to happen. Secondly, it's really the the nature and character of the church. See, the church is supposed to be, uh, it says this in Ephesians 3.10, that we are, that the the church, that through the church, that God's manifold wisdom would be put on display, that, that the apex of his wisdom would be put on display through the church. And here's how that happens. It's, it's through people from every tribe and tongue, all different kinds of people with different philosophies and ways of life and thinking, skin color, all of that coming together, not just bearing with each other, that's a start, but actually becoming one and loving each other. And this would be a demonstration to the nations of the world that there really is a God in heaven and his power would be perfected through and in us. And this has always been his plan. I mean, we see this when the church first started. When the church first started, the very first day, the Spirit fell down on the church and empowered them. Um, All the nations came together and they they could understand each other. It was a reversal of something that happened in the Old Testament called Babel. Sin caused a, a group of people... 
Well, if you back up Genesis 3, when sin entered the world, it, it entered the first family, and sin fractured that family, and brother killed brother. But it also fractured society, and, and different races were created all over the world, and, and people spread throughout because of their pride and because of their sin. Sin separates, but it's the power of the gospel. It's the power of the Spirit that brings us back together. And that's what we saw in Acts. And this is so important. And then we see at the end of the story in, in Revelation, we're going to be in heaven all around the throne, the nations of the world worshiping the one risen Savior. That's His plan. And it's going to happen. And I want us to be a part of it. So we're, let's talk about that. In Ephesians 2, a uh, little bit of warning. This is going to be a little longer than normal, okay? Not not long, long, but just, you know, online service long. They've been a little shorter, as you've noticed. Be a little long. And the other warning is that this is going to be a little awkward and a little uncomfortable. But here's what I know about you. You are not following Jesus to be comfortable, right? You are following Jesus because you love him and you want to be like him and you see that there's life in him. And I'm telling you that this, this may be awkward and uncomfortable, but it's going to be worth it because we're going to, we're going to experience the power of God through this. So Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, it's kind of a long verse, kind of get your eyes ready for this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time, separated from Christ, okay, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, speaking of the cross, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he may create in himself, here's our word, here's our phrase, one new man, in place of the two, so making peace, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The gospel says that you and I are more sinful than we could ever imagine, but, but we are also more loved as well. That's what the gospel, the gospel news that we were so sinful that Jesus had to die on the cross. But God is so loving that he was glad to do it. The bad news of the gospel is that we were eternally separated from him. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came and he died in our place. And he loves us as is. He accepts us as is. He saves us as is. But also by his grace, he never leaves us as is. The good news of the gospel is that he has reconciled us vertically to God by his death, by his burial, by his resurrection. And this is a reality that we can never skim over. If we skim over it, we're going to lose our power to do anything eternal in this world. We must always, always remember what he has done for us vertically. And we'll, if we don't too, we'll, we'll lose our humility. We'll lose all kinds of good things. But the gospel doesn't stop there. While he has reconciled us vertically to God, the effect of that is that we are also reconciled horizontally with our brother. 
the Apostle John said it this way in his epistle, his first epistle. He said, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The bad news of the gospel is that we were dead in our sins and possessed hostility toward our brothers. The good news of the gospel is that we've been made alive in Christ and the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down to where complete strangers, even sworn enemies, are now walking as one in fellowship with Jesus Christ and one another, now doing life together, putting on the garment of, of love. You, I, I would implore you to read Colossians 3 to talk about how we treat each other talks about gospel clothing and how we love each other. This is such a big deal to Paul that he gave his life to it. Very famously in Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. See, when Paul would go in, in, into town, he'd have two questions. Where can I find me some Jewish brothers? And where can I find me some Gentile brothers? And then he would share the gospel. He would, he would do life with them and he would become, he would go to where they were. So he'd go to the synagogue to reach Jewish, his Jewish brothers. And he would go into the marketplace or the Hall of Tyrannus or Mars Hill to go find some Gentile brothers. And then they were saved and added to the church. But now he had a situation on his hand. Because now he has these two people groups who were sworn enemies. What does he do with them? Does he go up north and create a church for the Gentiles and go down south to create a church for the, the Jewish, uh, his Jewish brothers? No, sir. That's not what he does at all. But what he does, he says, I am going to, you're coming together in one church. You, you were far off from God and you are also far off from each other. And the gospel reconciles us back to God, but it also reconciles us back. To our brothers. And verse 14 tells us why. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And he uses the word wall because there was walls that divided people in the temple. Uh, in the temple, there was a court of priests, there was a court of the Jews, there was a court of women, and there was a court of Gentiles. And so that was the dividing wall. And the reason why we must we must contend for one new man. We must contend to be multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-everything because it is the blood of Jesus that has torn down walls that divide. It is the gospel and his, the power of his spirit that brings us back together. But unfortunately, in our nation, we have done very little to reflect that gospel on the whole as a church. On the contrary, in many ways, we have built those walls back up. In 1787, um, it, uh, there was a black man who had the audacity, and I say that sarcastically, to pray in a whites only section of a Methodist church in Philadelphia. The whites in that church, while he was still praying, picked him up off his feet, took him outside and threw him in the streets. The rest of the African-Americans in that church gathered their money together and they went and bought a local shop, a blacksmith shop. And they started what would become the very first African Methodist Episcopal Church. And this put our nation on a very sad trajectory as most, Af as most, as most African-American denominations 
that were started in this country were started because whites began to erect what the gospel had dismantled, the dividing wall of hostility. hundred years after that, uh, the Southern Baptists would split off from the General Baptists over the issue of slavery. hundred years after that, MLK would peruse the church landscape of our nation in a very melancholy tone, would say that the 11 o'clock hour is the most segregated hour in our country. Translation, the dividing wall of hostility is still up, which means that most Christians in the U.S. are part of churches that look just like them, that look just like me, that look just like us. Most Christians have go to churches that are homogeneous, 90 plus percent. They go to churches that act like us, that think like us, that vote like us. And the greater tragedy is that you and I would be okay with that. Martin Luther King also said that hatred, uh, the only thing worse than hatred is indifference. May that not be us. Because listen, the dividing wall is not getting any better. We have to, we have to not be okay with this. I read an article a couple years back from the New York Times that said that was highlighting this growing trend in our country. All right? That people of color were rapidly leaving predominantly white churches. And we became, as a church, we're becoming more and more segregated. Something that's not getting better, something that's getting worse. In an area, I mean, the church should be killing it in this area. We should be winning so easily in this area because of the power of the gospel. We should, we should be winning, but we've been losing. Jesus died to tear down this wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man instead of the two. Those who understand the Greek uh, or look at the Greek at all ever uh, probably know that there are two words for new. One is called uh, neos, which is neos is new in relationship to time. So it's like the latest and greatest, like the latest and greatest iPhone or the latest and greatest 747. But the Paul, excuse me, the word that Paul uses here for new is not neos. Okay. It's not the latest and greatest. He uses this word kainos, which means newest of its kind speaks of invention so this is not the new iphone this is alexander graham bell okay it's a new category this isn't the latest 70, 747 this is the right brothers and what paul is saying is that the church is meant to create a community that the world has never seen not just the latest and greatest and aren't they cool and aren't they trendy but they are meant to see in the church right this is what jesus was talking about in, in us being salt and light that we are to shine bright, but we're also meant to be different and unique. And when we don't maintain that saltiness, what good are we except to be trampled on by men? And so Paul is communicating a vision where the church would be a community that the world has never seen. But how many people come into a church and think, typical, I've seen that. It's about what I expected. When in reality, people should be coming into our churches and seeing a, a dynamic and a power that they've never seen. Jews and Gentiles, Democrats and Republicans, blacks and whites, Asian and Latinos, loving each other under the power of the Holy Spirit. We just can't be not a part of the divide. We have to be a part of the answer. We have to work toward being one. We must be this third group. 
that spans the two. So how do we do that? Well, we do it through the cross, right? This is where our power comes from. This is what the Christian is resourced with. Ephesians 2.16, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body. That's with each other as well. Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's only one thing that will truly kill the hostility between men. That, that will only kill the hostility that we see in our streets, in our homes, in our hearts. And it's through the cross. You know, I think it's absolutely amazing that I see so many people... Um, talking about and coming to grips with the reality of racism, both personally and systematically. Now, there's a cynical side of me um, that's wondering how much of that is is um, deeply personal and, and how much of it is posturing. You know, because sometimes we just want to be right on the issue. So that that's a cynical side of me. I'll, I'll admit. Because on, but on one hand, you know, I really don't care. I mean, like, man, I just want the thing to end. I want racism to end. So on one hand, I, I, I don't really care. But I just, we just need to know. We need to know. Like, we have to really look deep into our hearts and make sure that we do true repentance. Because, like, you take a weed in your backyard. You don't go back with your weeds and trim them to make them all look nice and acceptable. Because you can do that. Sometimes weeds can, weeds can look pretty good, you know. Like, you trim them a certain way. Oh, that's okay. That's the way that you attack a root, it, it, uh, excuse me, a weed, is you get it by the root. And that's what you do with sin. Racism is sin. We just don't want to present it, you know, the externals. You know, pretend that we're, we're, we're doing something we're really not. But we want to go deep into our heart and pluck that thing out. And only the cross can do that. The cross kills the hostility. It kills the apathy in me that would not care. It also kills the self-righteousness in me that makes me woke on the outside but dead on the inside. We, we want to we contend for the real thing. We want to contend for the power of the gospel to do a deep work in our heart and then through us to a hurting world that is desperate for answers. And the church uniquely has it in the message of the cross. The cross gives us the resources to wage war and defeat racism that separates you and I. I'll say it this way. Jesus Christ on the cross wrote a check that gives to us one new man. But it's like the church is just holding on to that check and not cashing it. The only way it's gonna, that check's going to do any good is we've got to cash it. We have the power. We have the resources in the gospel. We've got the check. We've got to cash it, church. We've got to pursue this with passion and energy. It's our calling. It's our calling. And the world doesn't understand this. But if we know through the power of the Spirit and through the reading of scriptures that the church has the weapon to get after it, and we need to use that weapon. It's not a weapon against flesh and blood. It's a weapon against demonic powers. And we need to see the cross kill the sin in us and kill the sin in our culture. So this, we can be done with it. Not trim it up to make it look pretty, but to pull it out from its root. My prayer is that this we will be the generation, that in this generation we'll see this come. So where are we? How are we doing at this? Um, this is where it gets uncomfortable. And, and granted, I'm probably mainly talking to, to white people. I realize that um, it's not just white people who, who may need to look in the mirror here, but it's, it's, I think it's mainly white people. There's a few, few phases, you might say, that that we need to take stock in. One is ignorance. 
Uh, we don't know what we don't know. You know, in our schools, um, you know, what we learned about our nation, at least what I learned about our nation's heritage or history, our heroes or our role models were almost always white. I mean, the one exception was the peanut, right? George Washington Carver. That was, besides athletes, that was the only person of color that I really heard of that's made a difference um, in our country. And, and what that made me think in my subconscious is that, that, um, that all major contribution that that anything that that an African American would do uh, to contribute to society was an outlier. It wasn't it wasn't normalized. I wasn't taught that math originated in Africa. I wasn't taught that about the major contributions of architecture that came from Africa. And again, what comes to my subconscious is that, that, that that's just not normal. And what's normal is that the, is that the people who've made a real difference are white people. And Africans are not capable. African Americans are not capable of making an impact. But it's not just the education I got in the world, it's the education that I got in the church. And so Abraham and Moses were presented as two white dudes, even though even white dudes, even though that Abraham, number one, was Iraqi. And no offense to Charlton Heston, but um, man, Moses was was from Africa, right? And in Sunday school, the disciples were they like these twelve Chuck Norris looking dudes. And, and, and that's what we were taught. And so we just skipped 1,500 years all the way to Martin Luther, another white guy, skipped over guys about the, the influence of guys like Augustine on, on theology, right? Not just, not just Augustine, but Athanasius made major contributions to uh, Christian theology. I was not taught that the first American missionary was George Lyle, uh, a black man. Uh, I just heard about John Perkins a few years ago and other many great men who've made a real impact on our the way that the way we do church, the way we uh, on theology and the, and the way we think. I just I weren't wasn't, I didn't know what I didn't know, and we also remain ignorant if we refuse to acknowledge disparities in things like housing and education and, and money, and we and we reduce racism to lynching and and whites only water fountains and using the N word. That it's much more, it's deeper than that. It's much more nuanced than that. And this ignorance leads to an immaturity. It leads us to be silent when we should speak up. And it it leads us to, to speak up when we should be silent, when we should be listening. We stay in our ignorance when we feel threatened or aloof by the idea that racist things could happen on our watch. Or we get irate when, when, when a football player takes a knee, not being able to understand the intellect or the history that's behind that. Now, I'm not even saying that we have to agree with it, but we must understand it. Why must we understand it? Because one new man is at stake. This is just ground level relationship. I care about you. I want to see you. I want to know you. So we cannot stay in this place of ignorance. I mentioned that the New York Times article that talked about the increased exodus of people of color from majority white churches. One of the reasons, and this is, again, don't, I'm not getting political here, but you, we have to address this. This is what this article brought up. So one of the reasons they were leaving is because of the unqualified support, unqualified support, that's the key word, unqualified support of white evangelicals to our current president. Unqualified support. Despite the persistent moral failures and his ambiguity and sometimes disregard on critical issues of race. 
Okay, so we speak out at, on, on other issues, but we don't speak out when he is so violent and so disparaging in his words, at least, about other races. Here's what we know. 81% of church-going whites voted for Trump. 88% of church-going blacks voted for Hillary. So there's a clear divide. And the issue isn't who should be president or who should get voted in. But the the difference is is neither side wanting to understand each other. But here's the question of the article. This is, is, again, those of us who are white really need to, to, to see this and hear this. The question the article presented was whether or not the 81% of white evangelicals who voted for Trump had been sufficiently clear in the identification of African Americans and other people of color in their struggle. Or do we stay ignorant? This is a question that they asked, and it's an important question. Look, like I said, I'm not trying to communicate who we should vote for or not vote for. But when, if you're public about a president who's disparaging about other races and you don't say anything, what are people of color meant to think other than that you're for it? And I hope that you're not for it. So if you're not for it, you need to be clear that you're not for it. Dr. George Yancey, a sociologist and member of the Village Church in Dallas, a great church, um, After he says this, after weighing everything that you still felt compelled to vote for Trump. He says this, I can see where you're coming from, but if that was you, your voice needs to be the loudest when disparaging things are said about fellow citizens. And on the other side, if after considering all the factors you felt compelled to vote for Hillary, your voice should be the loudest about the sanctity of life, religious liberty, or the ability that God has put in each and every one of us to make something of ourselves. Now look, again, I'm not trying to make a political point here other than to say that we have, we're staying ignorant and staying silent on issues and lacking empathy and we're not making it clear where we stand and it's so important that we do. In their book, Divided by Faith, authors Emerson and Smith uh, conducted a poll of black and white Respondents asking what contributed to racial disparities in our country. And the fact that that blacks have lower average household income, net worth, and lower probability of advancement is statistically undeniable. Now, why that exists, there are two main reasons that people give. One is individual responsibility. The other one is is systematic racism. And you... You can respond all along the spectrum. And so what they found out is that blacks and whites differed on their answer. But what's really poignant is that Christian blacks and whites were more um, further apart in their answer. And my point here this morning isn't try to unscramble that egg, but simply to show how far apart our perceptions are and why there needs to be a lot of listening. So when there is something like a police shooting, it appears to be an unarmed man an unarmed black man, or what we see with George Floyd. Do we at least understand that there has been a long history of racial injustice that conjures up in the mind of our African-American brothers and sisters who experience this over and over again? Do we care and empathize with that pain? Do we lament? So that's 
there's a phase of ignorance that we need to get through. And I, and I think I'm seeing that. I'm seeing us get through that. Then there needs to be awareness that we need to set so this low bar that we need to weep with those who weep, that we need to allow our hearts to feel the pain of another. We need to lament with them. And I know what a, a lot of this makes it confusing is because racism it gets tied up with a political issue, right? But racism is not a political issue. It's a biblical issue, which is why it's so important to us. And, and we are kingdom first people. And, and because our allegiance is with the kingdom, it's, it's first there. And, and there's nothing else that's even a close second. It's Jesus and like, man, I don't even know where the second one is. It's so far away from me. But, but issues of justice often get tied to political parties. And so even those on the left, they, they can't publicly lament over the loss of life through abortion because they're afraid of conceding a political point. Those on the right can't publicly lament over racial and social injustice because they're afraid of conceding a political point. We've got to get through that. We have to be better than that. We have to, we have to relate to the pain of others and not try from a distance to kind of intellectually figure it out and give a reason for it, but to move quickly to empathy. This is going to mean repentance, both of past sin and present apathy. Past sin and present apathy. We need to we need to repent of present apathy. We also need to we also need to repent of past sin. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean sins that our forefathers committed. It's important for moving forward, and this is this is hard for us. But we need to understand that it's hard for us not be of scripture, it's hard for us because we're Americans, we're white, and we're Western, and we're individualistic in our thinking. But the Bible speaks a lot about this. The Bible speaks a lot about corporate sin. For example, in 2 Kings 22, check this out. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us. Check this out. Because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. So he begins to repent of what their fathers had done. And what's interesting about this and feels relevant to those of us who are white and want to pursue one new man is that if King Josiah felt the need to repent, not of his own sin, but the sins of other generations, we need to do the same. And this, this is all over Scripture. There's the sin of Achan. You can read about that in Joshua. Uh, in Daniel 9, he falls on his needs, not of personal sin, but of corporate sin. Of course, this is not just an Old Testament idea, but this is woven into the message of the gospel in Romans 5, that through one man, Adam, that because Adam sinned, we all now have the sin nature, that because of his action, it's something now that's corporate. So we need to take responsibility not only of our present apathy, but past sins so that we can move forward. And I know that's hard for us because we're American, because we're individualistic, because we're Western, because we're, we're white. It's something that, you know, the Bible does speak of individual guilt, but I think it's something that we overemphasize. So, for example, when we celebrate the 4th of July this year, we understand that the, we, we understand that the freedom that we have in this country um, wasn't freedom for everyone. In 1776, our African-American brothers and our Native American brothers and sisters, on that note, were not shooting off fireworks. Our African-American brothers were in the cotton fields. But here's what they've done. They celebrate this day of freedom with us because they love our country. 
and they love us. And so they celebrate with us. But I think that we need to understand the history and understand that they have a very different history than we do. And it's written very differently, and we need to not stay ignorant. We need to become aware, and we need to move, we need to move toward. And so that leads us to the third phase, which is intentionality. There's ignorance, there's awareness, and there's intentionality. This intentionality can play out in a lot of different ways. First of all, it's relationship and proximity. If you stay distant and isolated and don't really have friends, you don't have people around your table who are different than you, who don't think like you, who don't vote like you, who don't act like you, you're going to get pulled into a ghetto. Because we've been talking a lot, because here's a concern I have. I've been talking a lot about the, the differences. And one of the things that is happening in our country that I'm praying that doesn't happen to you, doesn't happen to us, is that we see something like this and we just retreat further and deeper into our little enclaves. So conservative Christians get offended and they just defend themselves into an enclave. Progressive Christians say, ah, the heck with the church and prayer and waiting on God. I'm just going to go be active and, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to wait for God to do what he does. I'm tired of the church. I give up on the church. And so we just create this huge divide. And I'm saying there's a third way. There's a guy named, um, uh, who led the, the vineyard movement, uh, John Wimber, he contended for what he called the radical middle, <laughs> which is not neutrality. It's not just like, you know, trying to not offend anyone. It's actually, it's not, it's staying in the radical m- middle is not trying not to offend anyone. It's actually offending everyone. You're offending people to the left of you. You're offending people to the right of you. And that's what we want to be. We want to be in this radical middle where we're not just falling deeper and deeper into our own enclaves, but we want to actually come together. We want the hostility torn down. We want the apathy torn down. We want the self-righteousness torn We want it torn down because we want what God wants. We want one new man. We want to come together by the power of the gospel, by the power of his cross, by the spilt blood of Jesus and build something the world's never seen. But for that to do, we have to pursue each other we have to pursue each other. We have to have proximity. If we stay isolated, we'll never, it'll never happen. We've got to come close. We've got to have that. Paul, the apostle, he gave his life to this, his life for this. What got him arrested? We you know what got him arrested is that he brought a friend into the temple, a Gentile that he wasn't supposed to bring in. And the Jews arrested for him, and that arrest led to his death. He really cared about this, and we really need to care about this, regardless of the cost. We, we can't think, if we're... We can't think about what other people are going to think about us. We have to contend for this. So we gotta, we gotta, we gotta be intentional. We gotta educate ourselves. We talked about this. We gotta learn. We gotta understand. We gotta repent. That means we gotta go in another direction. We're going in the wrong direction. We gotta go in the right one. We need gospel action. We need prayer. We need to keep contending for prayer. Jesus taught us to how to pray and not give up. To the parable about a woman in Luke 18 who went before an unrighteous judge and she contended, contended for justice. And it didn't seem like it was going to happen, but the unrighteous judge gave it to her because she did not give up. And then he says, how much more will God not give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? He will give it to us. We need to pray. We need to have humility. And we need advocacy. Proverbs 31 says that we should speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves to ensure justice for those who are being crushed. Here's how I want to end. 
I want us to end. I want us all, I mean, there's lots of stuff to do here, and I'm going longer than probably you might have expected. Here's how I want us to end. We're going we're gonna to worship here in a second. I want us to end by all going to the cross. We all need to go there. Here's what happens at the cross. The cross is going to kill the hostility in you that you would have for anyone. It's going to kill the apathy in you that would keep you from running to people who are hurting, for weeping with those who weep. It's going to cause you to listen. It's going to cause you to become aware of things that maybe you weren't aware of. Here's the other thing it's going to do. It's going to kill the self-righteousness. And this last thing, it's, I'm going to say, I just, you know, at the, at the sake of being insensitive, but I, I love you, it, it also is going to kill the anger. And here's the thing. Um, if anger did any good, I'd say let it go. Let it fly. But anger is not hurting other people. Anger is only hurting you. And I love you. And I don't want to see anger get the best of you. I don't want to see it hurt you. I want to see you free. And the cross kills that too. We can all go to the cross for wherever we're at today. If we're, if we're lacking hope, if we're lacking patience, if we're lacking love, if we're, if we're, if we're, if we're lacking humility, for whatever we're lacking, the cross is the answer. And the good news is there's room. There's so much room at the cross. No matter what your background, no matter what you've done, no matter where you're at, God wants to reconcile you vertically to Him. And by the same power, reconcile you vertically to your brother, to your sister, to create this new humanity, this one new man. I love you so much. I'm praying for every single one of you. We've got a diverse church, all different kinds of people with all different kinds of philosophies and ways of living, people in the county, people in the city, people in, in rural areas, all different kinds of way of thinking, all different kinds of backgrounds and pains and issues that's very nuanced, hard to cover in a message like this. But I know, I know this. I know that Jesus is the answer. And I know He loves us. I know He died for us. And it's through the power of His gospel that He's going to put us on a new direction that's going to empower us to kill it in us, but also to kill the hostility in us, but also it's going to empower us to make a real difference in this world, a long-standing difference. God bless you.